I count it uh, a, a special privilege to to be with you here this morning to consider God's word together. I feel that the first Sunday uh, of each year is a very strategic Sunday. It's an occasion for us to focus our minds on and hearts on all that God has has done for us in the past and it's a special opportunity for us to review our priorities in life, to reconsider our personal objectives in life and to reset perhaps our personal ambitions. And I believe that, that we do this best when we pause to reflect on where we presently are in our personal walk with the Lord and remind ourselves of why God has saved us. I wonder if you've ever paused to consider this particular question. Why did God choose to save me and call me to himself? Have you ever pondered that question? Why did God choose to save us from our sin and call us to himself? Not why in the sense of what was it about me that made it necessary for God to save me from the consequences that I would otherwise have to suffer because of my sinful condition? And not why in the sense of what was it about the character of God himself that prompted him to have such a concern for me and show such interest in me. I mean, so far as my own sinful condition is concerned, well, Paul deals with that in Ephesians 2 when he speaks of how we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And he deals with what it was about the character of God that prompted him to take interest in us because he speaks in chapter 2 verse 4 of how because of his great love for us, he has made provision for our salvation. But the question, why did God save me, has to be considered in this slide. For what purpose did God save me? What specific objective did God have in mind when he drew me out of my sinful condition, placed my feet on solid ground, drew me to himself and saved me from the consequences that would otherwise come from me remaining unsaved. What was his purpose when he called me to himself? You see, I believe that this is one of the most God-honoring questions that you and I can ever pause to consider. The purpose 
of God calling us to himself. And when we explore the Bible for an answer to this question, we discover a whole range of life-changing truths that relate to God's intention for our lives. Truths that are so far-reaching that the impact on how I now see my reason for living. Truths that are so personal that they affect how I conduct my life from day to day and truths that are so encouraging and, and exciting that they may well lead to an alteration of my ambitions and a fresh vision of my future goals. And truths so challenging that they ought to provoke a serious review of my priorities in life. So what then is the answer to our question? Why did God save me? And why did God save you? What was his purpose in making you a member of his family and a citizen of his kingdom? Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that the answer can be summarized like this. And I was hoping that we might have a slide that would show what we were going to put on, suggest to you is his purpose. So that you can consider this as we spend some time on this this morning. Let me tell you what I believe God's purpose was in calling you and me to himself. That I might live to God's glory. That I might live to God's glory through my character becoming more and more conformed to that of the Lord Jesus. And by me pursuing to its completion that work that God has specially assigned for me to do for him. That I might live to God's glory through my character becoming more and more conformed to that of the Lord Jesus. And by me pursuing to its completion that work which God has specially assigned for me to do for him. And I don't know if you've realized it, but this is one of the major themes of the New Testament. And it's a matter that Paul addresses here in the opening chapters of his letter to the Ephesians as he points out the plan of salvation that these Ephesians benefit from. A plan that was conceived in the heart of God the Father before time began. A plan that was executed by God the Son in the realm of time. And a plan the benefits of which are applied to each one of us in the here and now by God the Holy Spirit. A plan, therefore, that involves all three persons of the Godhead and a plan 
that has a divine purpose in view because it's been designed not just for our personal spiritual benefit but for God's own glory. And here's the specific objective that Paul draws attention to repeatedly in Ephesians 1. Verse 6, that we might be for the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12 and again in verse 14, that we might be for the praise of his glory. And then in chapter 2 verse 10, that we might do the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. One phrase after another that focuses on God's purpose for his people. These people upon whom God has set his heart in eternity past and then called to himself and not merely in order that each of us can be delivered from our own personal spiritual predicament, desperate though that has been because of our sinful condition. But in order that we might be something special for him. Yes, something even glorious for him. You see, this morning our great desire is that we might get a firm handle on this great spiritual truth. That the plan of salvation that has mercifully included sinful people like you and me that without the intervention of God's grace and mercy were bound for hell is a God-centered plan. It's a God-centered plan that's been designed not just for our eternal good, but for his eternal glory. And that means that God expects something from us in return for all that he has provided for us and done in us and through us. Yes, it's a plan that perfectly deals with our personal spiritual predicament as sinners separated from God and in need of the salvation that's provided by his grace and obtained by us when we come before the Lord repenting of our sin and placing our faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. That's how we become part of that great plan. But it's a plan that goes way beyond I, me, my, and mine. It's a plan that goes way beyond our personal spiritual predicament. But it's a plan that involves us responding in surrender to the demands of God as declared in his word. He has provided everything we need for life and godliness through the sacrifice of his son 
when on the cross, as the hymn writer puts it, in my place condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood, with this result that we are saved and safe for all eternity. And our eternal destiny is forever secure. But listen, says Paul, listen, wonderful though this is, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's not all about you, Ephesians. It's not all about me as though I was all that mattered. I do matter to God, and you very much matter to God, but it's not all about us. Because this plan is centered on God himself. And it's a plan designed to promote the furtherance of his own glory. And however strange it may seem to us, this was God's purpose in him drawing each and every one of us to himself. That's why he chose us. That's why he called us to himself. That's why he mercifully saved us by his grace. Despite what we've been, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and despite all we've done, and despite what we were like, and despite what we can still be like to our shame, we are the objects of God's mercy. And we've been made alive in Christ, says Paul. And we've had implanted within us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and continue to work in us and through us. And his primary ministry within our lives is to gradually transform us into the likeness of Jesus himself while enabling us to live for God and equipping us and empowering us to be of service to God. And so you see, it's in truths such as these that we begin to find an answer to our question. Why did God save us? What was his purpose in choosing us? What was his purpose in calling us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and uniting us together as members of the body of Christ and making us, as Peter puts it elsewhere, a chosen people and a people belonging to God? Well, this was his purpose. And despite all the misgivings that we may have about our own suitability for such a task, his purpose was that we might be the means of bringing even greater glory to his name. By becoming the kind of people that he wants us to be, by using the physical faculties and the spiritual gifts that he has given us to carry out the service that he has planned for each one of us to do for him. That is his great, great plan for you.
That's his great plan for me, that we might live to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we have, if you like, the, the big picture, the biblical overview of God's reason for saving us. And when you begin to, to drill down into this deep mine of, of spiritual truth, you consider, you, you discover so many specifics that enable us to see the practical implications that this has for each one of us in our daily lives. For example, we read in Peter that we were chosen to be obedient to God. Now, obedience doesn't get a great press these days. It's not a particularly popular concept. But God's purpose in calling us to himself, says Peter, is that we have been chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions or evil desires when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all you do for continues Peter you're a special people you're a chosen people a people belonging to God and for this purpose that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light he said you were chosen to be obedient to God and this has always been God's expectation of his chosen people. Not merely that we would be obedient as the general rule by which we usually live our lives, but that in each and every situation of life, we should seek to know and live in accordance with God's will for our lives. And so this calls for submissive obedience to the specific commands that we find in God's word, some of which are positive, while others are prohibitive or restrictive in nature. And they're all plainly set out for us in God's word and not, not as some form of drop-down menu of possible options that we can click on or decide not to click on depending on our personal preference and what we think might be achievable without any undue disturbance to the way we prefer to, to run our lives. But rather, these are principles and commands and instructions that are presented as God's established will for us to acknowledge and accept and submit to and comply with, irrespective of our personal preferences, as we lovingly and faithfully apply ourselves to the pathway of obedience. 
while always maintaining that day-by-day dependence on God the Holy Spirit for the grace and strength that we lack and need from him in order to live lives that are faithful and obedient. So that conscious of our personal weakness and our proneness to be wayward, we daily seek from God himself those fresh supplies of grace that we need in order to be able to carry out his will for our lives. You see, if if love is the badge of the true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then obedience is the hallmark that validates the genuineness of that professed love for Jesus. Obedience certifies the sincerity of our professed devotion to the Lord. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This is the one who loves me. He who obeys my word. Jesus declared obedience to be the hallmark of love and he also said it's the pathway to us continuing to experience God's blessing in our lives. He says in John chapter fifteen verse nine, Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my father's commands and abide in his love. He says, these things I have told you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He has called us to obedience and obedience is the hallmark of our love for the Lord. It shows the sincerity of our professed love for the Lord. It's very significant and it's consistent with the rest of Paul's letters that when he begins this letter to the Ephesians, he begins by expanding on these great truths of the grandeur of God's plan of salvation and the spiritual riches that this plan brings to our lives, the lives of these ordinary sinful people whom God has set his heart upon and called to himself. That's chapters 1 to 3. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins with these words. I therefore urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Because, says Paul, this is a high calling. This is a high calling to an honourable and exalted purpose. Yes, nothing less than the furtherance of God's own glory. And so Paul then proceeds to demonstrate the inextricable link between 
this great plan of salvation and all the marvelous truths that pertain to that plan and the outworking of this teaching in our daily lives as with the enabling of God the Holy Spirit we seek to reflect the, the holiness of God in how we conduct ourselves in society and in how we display the love of God in the way in which we deal with the folks we come into contact with. And so we find Paul going on, and you can read about this this afternoon, dealing with everyday practical issues that affect each one of us. The importance of us establishing and maintaining intimate relationships that are divinely improved, divinely approved and spiritually helpful to us. Of pursuing interests that are God-honoring while avoiding those activities and those alliances that are spiritually harmful or a barrier or a hindrance to our spiritual progress and urging us to adopt biblical values and apply biblical standards to every area of our personal, family and working lives. So that in these areas and in every area of our life, we might be seen to work out the salvation that God in his grace has worked in to our lives. So that what we might be in practice will be a true reflection of the exalted position that we have in Christ because of what God has done for us. And you see, Therefore, why obedience is so vitally important to this people whom God has called to bring glory to his name. Because we were chosen to be holy and blameless in God's sight. Paul says this in Ephesians 1. He points out how God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Now, holiness doesn't get a good press either. And righteousness is scorned by the world. But this is valued so greatly by God himself. When writing to the Christians in Corinth, Paul addressed them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. In his second letter to Timothy, he reminds him of how God saved us and called us to a holy life because of his own purpose. Because when God called us to faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only forgave our sins, and he not only adopted us as his child, and placed us in Christ, and clothed us with the righteousness of his, of his Son, and rendered us holy, 
but he did so in order that we might live holy lives before the world, in order that we might reflect and practice what we are in fact. He wants us to live lives that reflect the privileged position that we have as members of the family of God that this position will be reflected in practice by the way we live our lives. As Peter puts it, just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all you do, for you are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. So says Peter, be in practice what you are in fact. And let your life be a testimony to the privileged position that you have been called to entirely due to God's grace and mercy. And we were chosen to be more and more conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus. That's why it's so important that we live lives that are holy, lives that are righteous, because we were chosen to be more and more conformed to the likeness of God's Son. Paul speaks of this in chapter 4, verse 22 of Ephesians, when he encourages these believers to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted by its evil deceitful desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self the new self that's been made possible because of God's grace in your lives put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness now none of this stuff is of the least bit of interest to the world You'll never find this being promoted in the media. But this is God's will and for each one of us that we would reflect the beauty of Jesus. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wondrous compassion and purity. Spirit divine, all my nature refined till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. It's the call that comes to each one of us to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit in his unique work of creating within us a family resemblance to the likeness of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That's his great work in our lives. To create within you and I a family resemblance to the likeness of Jesus. That's what Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 8 when he speaks of how God predestined us that we might be conformed to the image or molded to the likeness of his Son. 
in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, brothers and sisters who share this glorious family resemblance. And why? Why is this so desirable in you? And why is it so desirable in me? Well, because we were chosen to be for the praise of God's glory. And so you can see that we've come full circle. And we've arrived back at God's great desire for his people that we might live to God's glory through my character becoming more and more conformed to that of the Lord Jesus than by me pursuing to its completion that work which God has specially assigned for you and I to do for him. And we've traced some of the key steps that lead to this intended outcome by us being responsive to the call for personal obedience in every area of our lives, by us being desirous to live a life that's characterized by holiness and righteousness, despite what the world might make of that. And by us being cooperative with God the Holy Spirit as he works within us to cultivate his fruit and mold us into the likeness of Jesus himself. And not just so that we can sit back and smugly reflect with personal pride on how far we've come. And how much we've progressed. But rather that all the honour and all the glory might go to the one who planned it. The one who has made it possible that we might live to the praise of his glory and his grace. You know, our standing in Christ is no small thing. And it's good on this first Sunday of the year that we reflect upon the exalted position that God has given us in the person of his Son. As God's chosen people, we've been specially selected as ambassadors of the King of Kings. We've been specially commissioned to be his representatives before a watching world. We've been commissioned to be his witnesses. And there's something else, and it's something that we so frequently overlook, often neglected. There's a collective aspect to all this. There's a plural dimension to this call. Because this is family business. This is family business. Because just as God's plan of salvation is not about the effective resolution of my own personal spiritual 
predicament. Neither is God's plan of salvation all about me. And it's not about me focusing on my spiritual condition and selfishly applying myself to the the performance of my own spiritual duties and endeavours and objectives because there's a collective aspect to all this. And we must never lose sight of this. How in choosing me and calling me to himself, God has purposefully, yes, purposefully, made you and I part of the body of Christ. And he's thereby brought us into the closest possible spiritual fellowship with those other sinful and imperfect people that he's called us that he's called to himself, whom he's chosen to save, whom he's wonderfully united us together with in Christ. And why has he done it? He's done it in order that we might all support one another in seeking to be what God wants us to be. In order that individually and collectively we might be for the praise of his glorious grace. And what that means is this, it's both our privilege and our duty to support one another, to strive to help one another to be all that we can be and should be for him. Because each one of us has been called out of the same sorry spiritual condition. And we've all been called to the same glorious commission. His plan for each one of us is entirely the same, that we should be for the praise of his glorious name. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so on this first Sunday of 2024, this very strategic Sunday in God's plan for our lives, Surely our desire and our prayer for one another should be just like Paul's was for his brothers and sisters in the family of God when he prayed that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That our God might make you and I worthy of his calling so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us, that we might individually and collectively be what he's always purposed for us, that we might bring further glory to his great name. That's his grand design. That's the purpose of this great plan.
And our prayer is that we might be enabled by God's grace to live a life that is worthy of this high call.